Hello and welcome to the Remembering Wildlife podcast series in partnership with This Wildlife. I'm your host Amy Turner and throughout this series we will be talking with conservation organisations that have been supported by the funds raised by the groundbreaking Remembering Wildlife book series founded by Margot Raggett. To date the series has distributed more than 1.4 million US dollars to 68 different conservation projects in 31 countries across Africa, Asia, North and South America, and also into Europe. On this episode, we are focusing on remembering great apes. The bonobos, gorillas, orangutans, and chimpanzees, all with their own cultures and complex social relationships, and without a doubt, we can see ourselves in them. But they are under significant threat from habitat loss, the bushmeat trade, pet trade, mining, and even the transmission of human diseases. But with awe-inspiring conservation work being done, there is still hope. And on that note, I am joined by two hugely inspiring leaders in their own right. Afir Drawry, founder of the Lager Wildlife Enforcement Network in Cameroon, and Dr Cheryl Knott, the executive director of the Kanung Palung Orangutan Conservation Programme in Borneo. So turning to our first guest, Afir Drury, founder of the Last Great Ape Wildlife Law Enforcement Network in Cameroon, a truly revolutionary organisation that's been supported by funds raised from the Remembering Great Apes book, and it aims to protect the great apes and other threatened wildlife species from the illegal wildlife trade. It's quite a challenge to do justice to Afir using an introduction, but to give you a very brief overview, Afir was born in Israel, arrived in Cameroon in 2002 as an educator, photojournalist and activist, and subsequently founded Lager, the last of the great apes. And despite being a small group of local activist volunteers without a donor, and only seven months after its registration, Lager brought about the first wildlife prosecution ever in Cameroon. From 2006, every week a major illegal wildlife dealer has been arrested and 87% of these are now behind bars. Afia, it's an absolute pleasure to have you join us today. Can I ask where you are in the world at the moment and what the last 24 hours has been like for you? Uh, Amy, so I'm, uh, yeah, I'm in Nairobi right now, um, and the last 24 hours, well, uh, we had one arrest operations that we tried in Cameroon that didn't work, so it was a full day's work uh, that uh, ended up not working, but uh, we'll try again, so sometimes we have to go through uh, this kind of um, this kind of disappointments and uh, and failures, but we continue and we will we will get we will get that that specific trafficker, I'm sure. Um, and now an attempt, uh, another attempt for another arrest operation, uh, and planning it right now, uh, trying to trying to uh, to plan how to how to conduct this this arrest later this week. 
And right away, it's immediately obvious that you are in the thick of it and the epitome of living and breathing your work as an activist and conservationist. And on that note, let's start with your journey from journalist and photographer to activist and founder of Lager that brought about the first wildlife prosecution in Cameroon and you've had unbelievable levels of impact um, thereafter. So can you tell us how you became so involved in the fight against the illegal wildlife trade? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so I was uh, already an activist at the time, uh, just 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 by trying to give back to Africa so much that I've received as an adventure moving through through the bush in different villages and and with very extreme generosity of Africa towards me and that kind of uh, opens your heart to give back and that turned me slowly into an activist. So I was, I was already um, at that time writing about uh, human rights issues in Nigeria, stoning of women and so on. Um, it, became, it became a bit, uh, a bit tough. Um, basically, they were tempting to kill me. So I said, okay, let me go out of there and, and, and do something that I thought would be uh, relatively easy, um, crossing to Cameroon. I said, okay, I need some time to rest. Um, but at the time, as an activist, you always, you know, you always look at your interaction with the world and trying to, to get a, um, a productive interaction with the world. So you're saying, well, what, what can I do in Cameroon? Um, let me write about the extinction of apes. I went after um, a sentence from Jane Goodall at the time that uh, if we do not stop uh, the illegal bushmeat trade, the illegal trade in the meat, of, um, of, of gorillas and chimps, we're going to lose them forever um, within, within 20 years, them and, and many other um, threatened, threatened species. So I, I used that kind of sentence as my hook. That was, my, um, that was something that, that was very meaningful for me. And I said, well, let me, let me do something on that. Let me write an article about it, um, direct the public to... Uh, to all the efforts to try to to, to save the big apes, uh, try to uh, to 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 fight against this dark prophecy of Jane Goodall. And so you're writing this article with the aim of showing the world the plight of the great apes. And then I understand that everything changed when you met a baby chimp that you went on to call Future. Can you talk us through this unbelievable series of events? Yeah. I was stuck in my article, left towards the rural area, four hours away from the capital, where I was um, very fast um, uh, getting the stories from people uh, that there is illegal meat here, there is chimps meat being sold there, gorillas has being sold over there, and there's also live ones. Um, And so the following day, a motorcycle taxi was taking me uh, to the live ones. And, uh, and we reached a, a baby chimp um, that was uh, tied in the waist and uh, with wounds on the sides, how they usually do. Um, and, and, and this was a survivor of the bushmeat trade. And this baby chimp was, um, was one and a half years old, a Sikh, um, in a very bad situation. And 
Unlike the baby chimps, which I've seen in the sanctuary, this baby chimp didn't act the same way. Chimps specifically have that kind of um, strategy of, 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 of surviving by locking their emotional world. You know, um, when uh, with humans, you know, uh, uh, sometimes we see that with the mentally, uh, with mental patients, that um, they, they rock themselves uh, repeatedly uh, throughout the day. And this is sort of like a behavior of locking, locking yourself in. And that's exactly what uh, baby chimps are, are doing, locking their emotional world uh, in. And they were treating him just like a rat. They were poking him with the sticks and, 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 and abusing him. Uh, and that's how he acted. He was just snapping his, 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 uh, his teeth on things. And you could not get any signal that there is somebody there, a real um, sentient uh, uh, being with, with some kind of uh, consciousness, which I'm some kind of rich emotional world, world. They were trying to sell him to me for $100, and um, obviously I didn't want to do that because that would just send them back to the forest. Um, and I went to the station, to the station of Wildlife Station, Wildlife, wildlife uh, uh, Officers Station, trying to tell them, well, let's go to the place, let's save this baby chimp. Uh, it can die any minute now, just one and a half years old baby. Um, and let's apply the law, you know, and then... And, and, um, Long story short, after so many kind of attempts to, to, to try to make them do their jobs, which they didn't want to do, uh, in the end, they just told me, uh, they told me they were afraid, they told me they don't want to go, they told me they, they want money to go, and so on and so on, bribing. Um, and in the end, after about 40 minutes, they just said, listen, what, what do you want, white man? You, you want a baby chimp? We'll sell you another baby chimp. So I was quite desperate of the corruption that makes wildlife officers uh, being themselves traders where I'm trying to get them to, uh, to just, you know, uh, uh, save a baby chimp. Um, and I, 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 I went, you know, I couldn't sleep that night. I knew I have to save this baby chimp. I had this article that the whole story was very clear to me. The frustration was very clear. Corruption in... African governments, corruption in the, in the conservation world and inability to, to do anything about it. And I couldn't sleep that night. I stayed up all night and I was angry. I wrote all my anger. How is it possible that you don't have a system that can save this baby chimp now? All I was writing about had that kind of like example of one baby chimp, he can just die. Or he can outlive me, you know, he can, he can easily outlive me if we save this baby chimp. And uh, I wrote all my anger about, you know, the system, how it doesn't work, how it doesn't operate, and, and how there's, you know, and, and, and then at a certain point in the night I was saying, well, why, why are you so angry? What were you expecting to find? What did you want to, to have here? And then I started writing what I thought should be there, what I was thinking that I would find there. Um, as an ending to my article, which I didn't find, um, which was a, a group of activists, real activists, not conservation careerists, that would fight, real fight as a mission to save, uh, to, 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 to stop this uh, illegal trade. And they would fight corruption uh, to get the law applied. They would fight corruption in all levels uh, because that's what it's all about. And... Um, and they will carry undercover investigations to, 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 to get this uh, 
um, to, to find the bigger traffickers and especially the corrupt officials that are that are doing that um, and uh, and the corruption around it. And then you have the courts, but the courts are probably um, just as corrupt. So you cannot just hand it to the courts. Um, then having a, a, a follow-up uh, of corruption in the courts, uh, representation of those cases in the court, making sure, you know, combating the corruption, the judge level, prosecution level, and so on, even in the prisons level. Um, and, and of course, trying to create deterrent by, by using the, the media to inform the public that the law is actually now enforced. You know, justice is working. So I wrote this, the whole, you know, I wrote it in the night. Um, and, and the following morning, I was going back to the, the, to the station, to the wildlife station, and I was telling them, okay, forget it. You're saying you're afraid, you don't want to do it. Just give me the book of laws, I'll do it. And I took the book of laws, and, uh, and uh, I went to the traffickers' place. I uh, put it on their table, and I read to them, three years imprisonment. And they were totally unimpressed by my, uh, by my theatrics because, you know, and I said, okay, well, yeah, I know this law means about what? $5 bribe, something like that. Yeah, we know, but that's exactly my new job. And then I started bluffing them using what I wrote the night before as if it exists. And I said, well, I'm a part of this big NGO, this big charity that is, uh, that is fighting corruption to get the law applied. That's our work. The only work is to make sure you don't bribe your way. Uh, you know, I'm sorry, but the judge is already informed. That's our work. There's a car coming to take you. And now they got completely hysterical. They started shouting at the motorbike taxi that brought me in. Um, and they took this very seriously. And I, I let them boil in their juices a bit. Um, took my time with it. And after a while, I told them, um, and I was... You know, doing as if I'm talking to an imaginary headquarters of my imaginary uh, uh, organization that I was I was writing the night before, and uh, and after a while I told them, look, yeah, you know, you guys are very nice. You got me to your house. If you remain my informants and you'll tell me more about the illegal trade and all those are working with you, the entire network, maybe there's something I can do for you. And they pleaded, please, please do that. And at this point of time. Um, they just wanted to get rid of this baby chimp. So my bluff worked. And um, I went and I went to that, it was a big house, nice house, but the baby chimp uh, with the rope in cutting its, its waist, uh, oozing, oozing blood, was in a small corner of a dirty outside kitchen. And I went there and tied him from his rope Everybody thought he would run away because he acted like a rat. They were like, didn't think about him like a thinking and emotional creature as a baby, you know. And I, I opened the, I opened the, the ropes and just uh, stood up and stretched my, my arms. And <clears throat> he climbed my body from the legs up to my chest, gave me one big hug. And in this hug, he just was transformed in that second from, you know, uh, something that, 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 that was like a rat or like any kind of like creature, you wouldn't see the emotions on it. 
uh, to a real baby, a baby with needs of love and emotions. And from that moment, he was unseparable from me. Nobody could take him away from me, actually. Uh, even myself, uh, he just basically adopted me immediately as his new uh, mother, father, and uh, and I ended up taking him to uh, to uh, to the capital, and ended up taking care of, of him. I named him Future because that's what I wanted to give him, and 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 basically this small tiny baby forced me uh, to uh, to take what I wrote that night. And, and make it, you know, make it a reality and, and fight for it and fight for the future, not just for him, um, but for the future of his, of his species. And, uh, and what I wrote that night is, is what we do today. Afir, I'm actually trying to think of the correct level of vocabulary to describe what you've just told us, because that story is remarkable on so many levels. And that encounter with future combined with your relentless and dogged determination to free him and get some sort of justice has led to exactly what you say it's, it's led to the creation of Lager, which is an astonishing organization and and in terms of that process of you writing all of those thoughts down on paper with that huge amounts of emotion and passion and absolute determination to do something what did the process look like of, of setting up Lager from there on? Yeah, so, you know, I was a father and mother of a baby chimp. He was on me all the time, um, sleeping on my body. I had to change diapers uh, six, seven times a day um, and uh, bottle feed him with, with, uh, with, with milk powder and so on. Um, so doing that, I started trying to, 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 to set up a new organization from nothing. And we had nothing. I had nothing, um, which was very good because it meant that you know the people who got attracted to that, people who could you know could join, knew there's nothing in it. There's just an idea and a real hard fight. And so we got a good team of 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 uh, of, of, of Africans, of Cameroonians, um, around around that, and uh, and started looking at that plan and trying to make it a reality. It wasn't easy. We but, uh, you know, um, with, with, with blood and tears, but we made it happen. Um, and, 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 we, and after a few months, we got the first ever uh, wildlife prosecution uh, against a wildlife trafficker, not just in Cameroon, but in, definitely in all of uh, forest-covered Africa, Central and West Africa, and, 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 and arguably much more than that. Um, and, and once we have done that, we really got a lot of headlines because it was clear um, not just that not just it happened and it was a landmark thing, but it also exposed that it never happened before. So it exposed the kind of sham that you have a law, but it never is never applied. You have conservation, but nobody takes care of, of these kind of problems. Um, and highlighted the fight against corruption within conservation and so on. So it had, it had a good impact. That, that, that got us to grow and start getting far bigger targets, far bigger traffickers, far bigger. And we started getting, you know, police commissioners behind bars, we started getting colonels behind bars, politicians behind bars. Even, 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 even a wildlife director, a person who is in charge of all of wildlife um, a, 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 a protection 
in the Ministry of Wildlife, we got him to jail because he was a trafficker. So we started getting uh, big traffickers of, 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 of ivory, leopard skins, lion skins, a lot of different things. So we work it, uh, you know, holistically on the illegal, illegal wildlife, uh, wildlife trade. And, um, uh, and we started getting uh, to a good rate of, 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 of getting big traffickers uh, behind bars. Again, not an easy fight. But uh, with idealism and activism, we really, really done something that is not work or a job, but a mission and a fight. And, 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 and that's how LAGA, the last great ape organization, it's initials of the last great ape organization. And the logo of it is still is the face of, of, of future. Um, and, and that's how we started getting um, more legitimacy to that kind of, of, of very radical and exceptional model. Um, So the Lager model for fighting corruption and trafficking has clearly been highly successful in Cameroon. And I understand that this has been rolled out across many countries into the Eagle Network. Can you tell us um, about your plans for the Eagle Network and how that came about? Yeah, well, we started replicating the same model because it started, people got more interested in that. Say, well, wow, this is working. How does it work? And and it's trying to contact us from different countries. And, and we say, okay, look, we want to grow as a community, not just as an organization. So we want to associate other people in country, in each one of the countries, in it. And so we call it replication of the model. Um, and that's how it started. And after a few countries, the countries themselves said, well, look, we listen, we need to have far better structure uh, to be an umbrella body of all this whole, this whole thing. Um, and, and so we formed together the Eagle Network and the Eagle Network now has nine different countries, just like Laga. Um, and, um, and all those teams are teams of activists uh, operating in the exact same way. We're all together carrying this fight. And, and every week we have, uh, you know, a few, we are, we are, we get arrested at least a few wildlife traffickers um, and managed to, 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 to get them, to get them into a jail. Almost all the times we have, you know, attempts of corruption that we need to fight. Uh, but that's how it works. Uh, it works now when we get bigger and bigger cases, bigger and bigger traffickers, the abilities, our abilities keep on growing. So if you ask about the future, then yes, we want to have bigger impacts, maybe more countries, definitely uh, higher levels, at times we manage to really get uh, heads of, 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 of criminal syndicates, uh, whether uh, usually Asians, uh, into jail. Um, and, and we want to do more, more on that. Uh, I talked about, you know, putting in jail uh, um, the, the top, of, top authority of the country in charge of management of wildlife. So there's definitely more high officials in exactly that level in other countries that needs to get to jail. Um, and that's what we aspire to. And so finally, it goes without saying that your approach to acting against wildlife trafficking is absolutely outstanding. And from what we've heard, you've seen the very, very worst of human nature and the atrocities of the illegal wildlife trade. And I have no doubt that people listening in may also have experienced their own situations where they feel absolutely compelled to act. But 
due to the high complexity of, of some of these situations um, and almost feeling like, well, one person, what, what can we do to go up against these problems? It's often left people with a sense of helplessness or hopelessness. So what would your message to them be? Let me explain a bit more about the activist approach. Um, I, I think that there's not a lot of difference between activists and, and everybody else. Uh, and I think that, you know, we are all getting mad about something in our environment. We're all in our, in our surroundings, right? We watch TV and we're really angry about it and usually end up being very frustrated and saying, well, look, you know, we snap to another thing in TV and says, this is just defeating. It's like, I, I don't want to hear more about, um, about things. And, um, and an activist is, 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 is someone who had an experience of doing something small, anything, you know, um, but he succeeded as an individual. And it can be anything, you know, people are angry about many things. We're like angry about, about, about some kind of open areas just next to them that got destroyed or a river that gets uh, polluted or, 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 or even a big signpost that is just put outside of your garden and then it affects how you look at the world it affects the world around you you know but um an activist somebody who's doing that something small as an individual and it succeeded and therefore realized that I, you can't say somebody else will do it you know it's like oh why, why they don't do it you know it's you is to do something small but you do it and, and once you're going in that way that you you actually do something just, well, saving a baby chimp, but writing to a member of parliament uh, uh, that you you do not want to have the river polluted, you do not want to have your uh, that tree with all the birds around it that you loved uh, uh, destroyed. And and once you do that, and you succeed, you realize the power of the individual. That is the difference. It's not about the consciousness of it. It's not about the anger against things. It's about um, recognizing your ability to bring about a change. And if you have that, if you have that ability, you have the responsibility. And therefore, you look at the world in a completely different way. In how you interact with the world has a different meaning to you. It is to what did you do to change it to, to better? And that's how we use our anger. So as, a, as activists, we're, we're, we cannot be defeated by everything around us. We cannot feel that frustration because our interaction with a problem in a very small way is we try to change it to the better. And therefore, I think that's a universal thing. It's not about a baby chimp. And I talked before about the, the universal way that all of us are connected to nature, just nature of humans is we're connected to nature. You can deny it, or you can just have a tiny experience that, 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 that kind of spark. Use that spark to bring about a change. You know, do your small part, and you'll see that that path is so rewarding. I wouldn't change it for, for anything in the world, that feeling of activism and what it gives to me.
Well, Afia, on that note, what an incredible honour it's been to speak with you today about future, setting up Lager, your your activism, your journey to fighting back against the illegal wildlife trade. It's honestly remarkable. And Remembering Wildlife is just so incredibly proud to have supported Lager through the proceeds of the Remembering Great Apes book. Afia, it's been a complete pleasure. Thank you so much and best of luck to you and the rest of your team in your future work and your fight against the illegal wildlife trade. Thank you, Amy. So moving on to our second guest, Dr. Cheryl Knott, the Executive Director of the Ganung Palang Orangutan Project in Borneo. Cheryl has been leading scientific research on the orangutan population in Ganung Palang National Park since 1994, and it's one of the longest running studies of wild orangutans in existence. I'm very excited to get an insight into the work of the Ganung Palang Orangutan Conservation Programme that aims to build support for orangutan conservation together with local officials and communities around the park. And I'll be particularly interested to hear about the programme's scientific research, which gains insights into the orangutan populations using ground-based nest counts and drones that a donation by Remembering Wildlife has supported. So Cheryl, before we dive into your work that I'm so excited to discuss, could you give us an idea of where you're calling from today and also give us a glimpse into your day-to-day life as an orangutan conservationist? Sure. So I'm calling from Boston University, where I am a professor of biological anthropology as well as biology. And so my day-to-day work here involves really juggling my responsibilities as a professor with running my research and conservation program. So I am in constant contact using WhatsApp with my team in the field. Um, I have a large team of about 50 people altogether between the research and conservation programs that are on the ground in Indonesia, you know, every day carrying out our mission. And I'm communicating with them during the academic year via email and WhatsApp. And in the summers, I spent my summers in Indonesia working with our team for a couple of months. So before we explore the specific work of the Ganung Palang Orangutan Conservation Programme, could you give us a window into the world of orangutans? What is the current population both in Borneo and Sumatra and specifically in Ganung Palang National Park? And what are the major threats facing the species? Sure. So orangutans live on the islands of Borneo and Sumatra, as you mentioned. And in terms of the numbers, it's actually one of the things that's really hard to say exactly what the numbers are. And that actually is something which the Remembering Wildlife um, program has helped us support is is some of that work. But I would say uh, people estimate maybe in Borneo between 30 and 50,000 orangutans are left and in Sumatra around, you know, 6,000. And in terms of threats they face, the main thing is habitat destruction. So orangutans are arboreal primates that are canopy animals. They're actually the largest mammal that's living predominantly in the rainforest canopy. And they are canopy specialists, so they really need rainforests. Very different than some other species that can move between kind of savanna habitats, like there are chimps, for example, that that use savanna habitats as well as rainforests, but orangutans are really rainforest specialists. And it's all about the habitat and everything that destroys that habitat. So the main threats to the habitat orangutans um, living in are 
illegal logging, illegal and illegal logging, so destruction of the forest for logging, um, clearing of rainforest for oil palm plantations, um, clearing of rainforest for paper and pulp plantations, sometimes mining, so mining of some areas also destroys habitat. So it's all about sort of land conversion and the, you know, the biggest rainforest areas have been uh, cut down probably because of you know, palm oil and some of these big plantations. And then, of course, they're also um, threatened sort of directly by humans, the illegal pet trade. And so in the illegal pet trade, they will kill a mother and take the infant. And orangutans only give birth once every eight years on average, which is one of the really interesting facts about them, which makes them really vulnerable to habitat destruction and this illegal pet trade because they reproduce so slowly. So that's another one of the threats is the, the pet trade and other kinds of wildlife human interaction or conflict. So orangutans that are kind of forced out of rainforest, maybe going into people's forest gardens and, and you know, eating some of their agricultural you know, plants or, ag or fruit trees. So there's some kind of conflict also related to that. There is also some some hunting still of orangutans. So some of the um, indigenous people may be hunting orangutans as well. But despite the threats that are facing the species, there is clearly hope in the form of organisations such as the Ganung Palung Orangutan Conservation Programme. On that note, Cheryl, I'm so interested to hear more about your work. Could you start off by giving us a bit of an outline of your overall mission? Well, our mission has always been centred on orangutans and protecting them and their habitat. But what we learned very early on is that you can't have wildlife protection without human well-being. These are really inherently connected. So the threat, the things that threaten wildlife are, of course, human activities. So most of our, the conservation work we do is actually with the human communities that surround the national park and helping them to achieve their own well-being goals. So most of our work is very rural um, and remote um, and working with um, providing economic and educational opportunities to the local people that live around the park and working with them to create conservation solutions. So our, our team are primarily Indonesians from the actual local area who work with the communities that they, that they live in, that they're from, um, and working with them on finding solutions to the problems that you know, face, face wildlife and that lead to habitat destruction. And as mentioned before, Remembering Wildlife is really very proud to have been able to support the orangutan nest surveys conducted by drones. Could you talk to us about this aspect of your work and its importance? So orangutans build a new nest every night in a new location. Sometimes they do you know, use the same nest again, but primarily they build a, a new nest every night. And so orangutan nests are actually used as a way to assess population density. And traditionally what we do is we do ground surveys and we go to often remote areas of the forest and we walk line transects and we look for these orangutan nests, which be, can be quite hard to spot. So you have to be you know, a trained team that knows how to find orangutan nests. And we you know, we monitor the nests and then through various uh, equations, we can figure out the density. So we have to take in consideration the number of um, nest building adults, the number of nests built per day in that location, 
um, and other factors such as the, the rainforest type and habitat and how long nests will last. And that is used to come up with a, an estimate of the orangutan population size. But that's very labor intensive. So it takes a lot of time, a lot of effort, a lot of human power to go and, and get that data. And so um, for the last few years, we've been working with, with other colleagues to develop methods for using drones to detect orangutan nests. And what, what we've been doing is that the Rambling Wildlife supported was we do ground surveys, and at the same time, we do a drone survey. So you fly a drone, it's a fixed wing drone, over the same transect where you're surveying the nest on the ground, and then that creates a photo mosaic. So pictures are taken, and then later that's made into this mosaic, and then you can look at that photo mosaic to detect nests from, you know, from, those, from those photographs. It's, of course, much faster to fly over using this drone. What's time-consuming is actually also looking at the nests from the photo mosaic. And one thing that we're also been doing is, you know, a human has to go through initially and show what it looks like, but then what a nest looks like from the, from the photographs. Then we're using um, artificial intelligence or AI models to train, you know, computers so they can actually, going forward, can use, um, use that recognition to process large amounts of images. And... Our hope then is that we can use this method to go in areas that are hard to access, you know, new areas that we can use this method to help um, detect orangutans. And it's been, you know, successful. We can we can detect it. At first, I was skeptical: can we find orangutans using a drone? But actually, you can. Um, you can find the nest. You can find them on the nest. And then, actually, another method that we're also using now is that we've added to that, and we're also now using um, a thermal drone. So a thermal drone, you can actually detect the actual animals. And so we've also been developing that as a, as a method as well, is using a thermal camera on a drone to also look at, look at um, orangutan detection. So, you know, it's, the orangutans are they're solitary, primarily solitary. Mothers with offspring will travel together. Sometimes if there's a lot of food, you might find more than one orangutan on a tree or a male and female, you know, could be consorting. But they're very hard, actually, to, to find. It can take a long time. And so that's why we need to kind of try to use our technology to develop better methods of detection of this, you know, cryptic and elusive species to, to know what the population size is, what also the effects are of our conservation efforts. So, you know, seeing what the density is so we can see, you know, is this intervention working or not? And looking at you know other area unknown areas to see if there are orangutans there and what their density is. And Cheryl, clearly you come up against so many hurdles. Whether, as you've alluded to, the difficulties in even identifying orangutan nests, combined with the dense rainforest in which you're you're working in every day, and I'm always struck by the relentless determination of our speakers. I'd be very interested to hear from you. What's your biggest and most significant challenge that you face so far? Well, I think one of the the main challenges is that everything just takes a long time, and I think that conservation. It's really, you have to be in it for the long term. So it's really important. These long-term projects that are committed, that are there for multiple years, are really essential to make these programs work. Um, the the nest surveys I talk about, you know, those take a long time. It was several years that we've been doing the nest surveys and then also the the um, 
analysis of the data of the, of the, of the photo mosaic data from the drones. Another program that we have is we work with local communities to help them uh, get legal title to their lands so that those lands won't be turned over to palm oil. So these are you know, forested lands that people use. And so that process can take many years actually to get the government approval and um, all the stakeholders to agree. So I think that that is one of the biggest challenges we face is just the, the kind of time that's involved and the sort of that, that commitment to, to um, sort of being there for the long term. Absolutely. And despite the challenges, you continue to make monumental progress in securing the futures of orangutans. What is your proudest moment so far in relation to orangutan conservation? Well, many proud moments. I think each of our different projects, when it's successful, it makes you very proud to see that it was accomplished. With the with the drone project, I think I was I was super excited when we found that we could actually detect the nests from the drones, um, and you know, seeing the photo mosaics and put together, and I, that was like a real proud moment. With the customary forest project, when we're able to have these these forests protected we have now almost um over almost nine thousand hectares that are that are protected and in eight of these customary forests so that's really exciting to see that we also work with local communities to help them develop alternative income alternative sustainable livelihoods so they're not involved in in illegal um, activities or things that destroy destroy forests and meeting with the people and seeing how excited they are and their pride in their the, the things that they're doing the alternative things they've found such as um, fish farming actually is one of them making products using non-timber forest plants to make various products that they can sell so when we're helping local people develop these alternatives and and visiting them on the ground and seeing how excited and proud they are that's a, a moment that makes me feel very, very really proud as well. And clearly with your list of proudest moments, you, you must have a huge element of hope for the future. And I think that is so heartening, um, especially given the world that we live in with the perceived negativity all around us. Could you talk us through what gives you hope for the future? Well, I have a lot of hope when I see that the progress we've made and seeing that it does make a difference and how you, you know, I go to the field and I see all these people that are involved. I see our, our staff who are totally committed, go and work with these people in these communities and see how they've totally changed their, their attitude and their perspective. Um, some of the people that work on our research team are former illegal loggers. And hearing them talk about conservation, talk about the importance of the rainforest, talk about protecting it, their excitement about the, the animals and the plants they're seeing, their knowledge. We have, you know, guys that were doing illegal logging 20 years ago, and now they know the Latin names of all the trees, and they know their flowering patterns, and they really understand firsthand um, the forest and, and sort of the, the desire to protect that. So I think seeing that, that transformation, other people than the, the villages that we work with that also, you know, were because they didn't have other alternatives, they're involved in slash and burn agriculture and, and cutting down forests. And now they are the, some of the champions of conservation. So that is something which, you know, I, I do feel hopeful. I, and I think that there is a lot of gloom and doom, but there's definitely 
there's lots of people on the ground, like my, like myself and like our, our staff and our organization and other organizations around the world who are actually doing this work, who are really, you know, making a difference. And I, I do feel like we've found the ways to make that happen. We kind of know what works. Um, you know, we're also constantly doing assessments to, to look at that effectiveness, but um, there is... There, there are many things that we know do make a difference, and I feel like we've kind of cracked that nut a bit about how to how to, to have a win-win for the wildlife and for the, the people. Well, Cheryl, what a brilliant way to end a fantastic half an hour of conversation. I have really loved talking to you about orangutans, about your drone surveys, about the communities um, that have really come on board with your work and, and joined your journey. So thank you on behalf of Remembering Wildlife and all of our listeners. And we really wish you the best in all of your work moving forwards. Thank you. Yeah, it's been a thrill to talk to you and also um, to share my work with your audience. You've been listening to the Remembering Wildlife podcast series in partnership with This Wildlife. If you'd like to get your hands on any of the stunning Remembering Wildlife books, please head to rememberingwildlife.com. We are This Wildlife podcast and we're here to bring the wild to you.